Good morning to everyone. It's a privilege to be with you. It's an honor to be your speaker this morning. So nice to start the week off with you here. It's been a long week and just refreshing to wipe it all away and, and come and spend an hour of worship with you all this morning. As we talked about on Wednesday, we're going to continue this morning our study on the book of Ecclesiastes. Today we find ourselves um, in the first half for the first four verses of chapter 7. It's been some time since we've taken a deep look, aside from Wednesday of course, but it's been some time uh, since we've taken a deep look at the book and so if you would allow me for a few minutes I want to start with uh, a quick refresh as we try to uh, put the entire story of this book together. If you remember, uh, our author started this, this book uh, with his thesis there in chapter 1, verse 2. You remember his thesis says, Hevel, Hevel, everything is utterly Hevel. Hevel is the Hebrew term. If you look in your Bibles, most likely uh, you will find that it's translated for us in, for us in English as either meaningless or vanity. Uh, literally, the word means vapor. You remember that our author uses this term some 38 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. 38 times. He uses this term as a metaphor to remind us that, first of all, life is transient and life is fleeting. Life is transient and life is fleeting. You remember in chapter 2, he walked us through all of these dead-end streets, and there are more, all of the dead-end streets that he tried to fill his life with to give his life meaning apart from God. Remember, first of all, he takes a trip down the path of pleasure. So many people today take a trip down the path of pleasure. And he says, yes, you can party every weekend. You can live it up. YOLO. You only live once. You can live to the fullest extent. Party hard every weekend. Monday morning always comes around. Hell. Then he says, well, if Monday morning always comes around, perhaps it's career that provides meaning to life. And so he chases down uh, his career path. He pursues his career. He looks at work. He says about his career, what's the point? At the end of it, what's the point? You work 40 hours a week for 40 years. That's 80,000 hours of your life. At the end of it, what do you really get? He says there in chapter 2, verse 22, For what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart which he has told under the sun? All his days are sorrowful. Even in the night, his heart takes no rest. What do you get for all the work that you do for your whole life? Stress, sleeplessness. All right? If it's not career, keep going. Maybe it's money. Perhaps it's money. That's the answer. Of course, at the end of his chase down riches and wealth, fame and fortune, what does he say? What is the point? It's only temporary. By the time you accumulate enough wealth to enjoy your first of all, you're too old to enjoy it. And second of all, you have to leave it to somebody who comes after you and you have no idea whether that person is going to waste it all away. Leave it to the person who comes after you. You don't know uh, if he's going to be wise or a fool. He says there in chapter 2, verse 18. So you have to leave it behind. And then in chapter 5, if you remember, he says, the more money you have, the more worry you have. The more money, the more worry. So money is temporary, stressful. None of these things answer the deep meaning of life. Heaven. Heaven. All is heaven. 
But then as we move through chapter 4, chapters 4 through 6, it's more about his observations. And he says, he uses Hevel to remind us that life is an enigma. It's vexing. It's frustrating. He says, think about all the oppression. He says in chapter 4 and then also in chapter 8. Poor people are constantly being oppressed by rich people. It's evil under the sun. And then also he talks about how money is no guarantee. You can prepare, you can plan for retirement, you can be conservative, you can save, save, save. But you have, there is no guarantee that your preparation means that you're going to enjoy what you've saved up. Money is no, saving up money, accumulating wealth, there's no guarantee that you're going to enjoy it. Life is just too unpredictable. At this point last time, my father-in-law is a great example. He's in the golden years of, should be in the golden years of his retirement. He's worked hard for 50 years. He's an honorable man in his community. And now look at it. One mistake. And God, he's in bad shape. He's in bad shape. He's worked hard, saved money, no guarantees. Life is too unpredictable. And then, if you can't see this, I apologize. But, fast Holding a little bit in the latter half of chapter 7 and through chapters 8 and 9. It talks about how righteousness, righteousness too, is no guarantee. Righteousness, too, is no guarantee that you're going to escape hell. Now, certainly it's going to help, but it's no guarantee that you're going to escape. We can all live righteous lives, but there's no guarantee that we're going to escape a terrible you know, diagnosis or whatever. There's no guarantee. There's too, there's too many exceptions to the rule. It says, there is a just man. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. I've seen too many good things happen to bad people, too many bad things happen to good people. Hevel. Hevel, hevel. Everything is utterly hevel. It's vanity and it's meaningless. And so, as we approach chapter 6, or the end of chapter 6, it's almost as if he just throws his hands up. Throws his hands up and he says, what, 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 what do we do with all this heaven? He says in verse 11 and 12, Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life? All the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. It's been a long week. I apologize. He says, what? Basically what he's asking is, is there anything that can decrease heaven? Is there anything that can decrease vanity? Or maybe a better way to ask it would be, how ought we to live in the face of heaven? How ought we to live? And as we go through chapter 7, 8 and 9, a little bit too, it talks about the great vexations of life in those two chapters. Chapter 7 and chapters 10, it seems to be his own answer to these questions. Basically, chapter 7, here are some ways you can decrease heaven. Here are some ways you can decrease heaven. First four verses that we're going to look at this morning uh, he gives us three or four 
better than statements. This is better than that. And here are a few ways that you can decrease frustration in your life. That's what we're going to talk about today. Verse 1, our first better than statement. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment. Here, of course, our author is talking to us about our reputation. He says, a good reputation is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment, of course, back then and still today, um, signifies wealth and, and affluence. Of course, you don't see a whole lot of people in poverty spending $200 on a half ounce of perfume. Perfume, of course, back then, again today too, signifies wealth and affluence. So really the verse reads like this. It is better to have a good reputation than a vast bank account. You can decrease heaven in your life. You can decrease frustration in your life if you will develop a good reputation. If you'll develop a good reputation. And he continues on. We're, we're skipping ahead a little bit, but in chapter 10, verse 1, he says this. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly for one respected for wisdom and honor. He said flies are very small, but a dead fly will ruin the perfumer's ointment. So a very little amount of foolishness will ruin a good reputation. It that's what's sad about it. It takes a lifetime to build up a good reputation. But it takes a very small amount of foolishness to ruin that reputation. That's what he's telling us here. There's no point in smelling like a bed of roses if every time your name is mentioned, people get sick to their stomachs. So what he's saying, number one, you can decrease vanity in your life, you can decrease frustration if you will develop and protect a good reputation. Develop and protect a good reputation. Moving on. <coughs> include the second half of verse 1. So the entire verse says this. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. So really the verse reads like this, just as a good name or a good reputation is better than vast riches, so the day of death is better than the day of birth. Which of course makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. We love birthdays and we mourn funerals. How in the world could the day of death be better than the day of birth? Well, this is where we really want to dive in for a few minutes this morning. I want to quote what Ryken says in his commentary. We'll use this to, for a launch pad for the main portion of our lesson. He says, the main reason the day of death is better than the day of birth is because, paradoxically, death has more to teach us about life. Death has more to teach us about life. Think about it. When a new baby is born, there's, there's virtually nothing you can say about he or she other than some vague impressions of their physical appearance or resemblance to a parent. Not much you can say. 
But flash forward 60, 70, 80 years, 90 years or more, there's a whole life worth celebrating. There's a whole life behind it. And to that point, I want to present two reasons for your consideration this morning why death is better than birth. Or at least why death, as Rikin says, is a better teacher than birth. Number one, it is at death, it is at, as the end draws near, that what's really important comes into focus. We tend to, when we see the end coming close, we tend to, near death, focus on what's really important. We tend to focus on what's really important. Think about all of the dead in the streets that Solomon chased after. Pleasure, career, money, and the others. Which of these things, when the end draws near, which of these things really matters to you? Not a single one. Not a single one. And so really the big point, at least one of the big points in Ecclesiastes is, if it's not going to matter to you at the end, why spend a whole lot of time on it now? And I'm not saying we don't work, we don't provide for families, but if it's not going to matter to you in the end, why elevate it now? Who on their deathbed looks around and says, I wish I'd spent more time at the office? Nobody. Who on their deathbed says, cash out my savings in tens and twenties? I want to be surrounded by my what cash I've got there. Nobody. Yet so many people today spend so much time chasing after these things. And he says, why? It's not going to matter in the end. Ultimately, they're not important. Sure, we have to make money. We have to have a career. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have a good time. But ultimately, they're insignificant. It is at the end that these things, the, the significance of these things really come into view. At the end, you're not thinking about pleasure, your career, your money. You're thinking about your family. You're thinking about the things that are really important. You're thinking about the things that really should be prioritized. Thinking about the kind of person you've been. Thinking about the reputation that you've uh, developed over your life. And you're also thinking about your legacy. Death has a way of, it's the great focuser. It's the great focuser. It, it helps us focus our priorities. None of us like talking about it. I don't like talking about it. But we have to face up to it from time to time. We can't spend our whole lives running away from it like so many in the world do today, just pretending that life will go on forever. We can't do that. We have to face up to it from time to time and remember what's really important. Secondly, we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves. Secondly, death is also the great mirror. Death forces us to ask ourselves, what kind of person am I? What kind of person am I? It forces us to stop, take a deep look inside of ourselves and evaluate. Evaluate our priorities. Have we wasted a bunch of time on things that don't matter? 
Have we not? Forces us to evaluate our conduct. Have we developed a good reputation, protected a good, good reputation, or have we not? It's the great focuser, and it is the great mirror. It, stop, it forces us to stop and self-evaluate. So really, I think one of the big questions is this. Should we wait until the end? Should we wait until we get that diagnosis? Should we wait until we're up there in age to think about it? Should we wait until the end to start living with proper priorities? Or should we do it today? Should we start today? I think that's one of the big points in this book. Don't wait until the end. At the end, none of these things are going to matter. Realize that today. Start living correctly today. Live with the end in mind. Remember that it forces us to self-evaluate and reprioritize if necessary. Of course, the problem is, and like I said, we talked about this a little bit already, so many people today spend so much time completely trying to avoid the thought. Again, I don't like to talk about death. You don't either. But so many people spend their whole lives completely avoiding the thought, filling their lives with noise and entertainment and whatever else to avoid the idea, to, to avoid the fact, the inevitable fact that one day it's, it's going to catch all of us. The, what blows my mind is the only time people like to talk about death is when the life insurance guy comes by. And then it's, give me as much money for as little premium as possible because I'm going to kick it. But you try to talk to them about death in, in another circumstance. No, 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 no. No, no, we don't want to talk about that. That's too heavy. And so Solomon goes on in verse 2 to this point or to this effect, and he says this. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Better to go, he says, to a good funeral than to waste your time at some dumb party with a bunch of superficial people pretending that life will go on forever. That is time ill-spent. He says it's better to go to a good funeral than to go to the house of feasting. Better to park your car in a graveyard and take a stroll and remind yourself the dates are catching you. That first number on those headstones, those dates, are ca they're catching up to you. No matter who we are, they're catching up to us. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Better to go to a funeral. Better to stroll through a graveyard. Why? Because that's the end of all of us. It's the end of all of us. None of us can escape. And when you do that, you can take the, the chance to take it to heart, to remind yourself the dates are catching you. Take the chance to take it to heart. I like what Riken says again in his commentary. He says, going to a good funeral helps us think wisely about death. It encourages sober contemplation of our own mortality, and this in turn teaches us how to live. Or how the psalmist says in, in chapter uh, 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Remember that your days are numbered. Remember that your days are numbered and use that as motivation, if necessary, to reprioritize your time, 
reprioritize your life, realign, and change your conduct if necessary. He says one place, this is Riken again, one place to get that wise heart is at a good funeral where we recall that our own days are numbered and recommit ourselves to living for eternity. Don't spend your whole life avoiding the idea. We all know it's inevitable. Don't spend your whole life avoiding the idea. Use it. Use it to teach you. Use it to change you if necessary. I suppose this may be our main point this morning. When we face the facts, when we remember our days are numbered, when we live with the end in mind, it forces us to deeply evaluate our priorities, our conduct, and our legacy, and we can use this as motivation to recommit ourselves, live lives with true meaning, and see past the world of Vanity Fair. Use it to teach you. Don't avoid it. Use it to teach you. Use it to change you, uh, if necessary. Or in the words of Tim McGraw, this song was, was I guess, written, and, and he sung it, I think, around 20 years ago. And uh, some of you weren't even born then, which is just crazy. But maybe, I'm, maybe I've been avoiding the thought. Now I feel old. But um, In the song... I assume that everybody knew, but now I'm just now I'm thinking that some of you weren't even around. I should better explain the backstory here. The main character receives, uh, I think you can assume, he was in his early 40s with a lot of life before him. Uh, he receives a, a, I think you can assume, a, a terminal uh, diagnosis. And so Tim McGraw, theoretically, asks him, he says, when you, when you, when you got it, when you got the news, what did you do? <laughs> he says, I went skydiving. Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. Those three things sound great, but that's not the point this morning. <laughs> Here's the point. He says, and I loved deeper. I spoke sweeter. I gave forgiveness I'd been denied. Said I was finally the husband. But most of the time I wasn't. And I became a friend a friend would like to have. All of a sudden, going fishing was in such an imposition, and I went three times that year, I lost my bed. I finally read the good book, and I took a good, long, hard look at what I'd do if I could do it all again. Sol Solomon's not asking us here to go skydiving or Rocky Mountain climbing. But what he is asking us to do is to love deeper, and to speak sweeter and give forgiveness to ourselves and to other people. To live like you're dying right now. Don't wait until the end. Make the change now if you have to. We don't have time. We just don't, we don't have time to be angry all the time. We don't have time to speak harshly. We don't have time. We don't have time to hold a grudge. There's no time for that. We've all got one shot, all of us, one. 
There is no dress rehearsal. There's no warm-up. There's no practice run. There's no respawn. There's no duo. We've got one shot. One shot to make it to heaven. All of us are going to go one day. You've got one shot. Are you taking it seriously? Are you living the way you should? That's the question. Am I living the way I should? That's the question. That's what he wants us to focus on. Live like you're dying. Live with the end in mind today. Don't wait. Do it today. Thirdly, fourthly, and finally, verses 3 and 4 it gives us another better than statement. It says, and it also doesn't make any sense, but at first glance, he says, Sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. I think the point that Solomon makes here as we, as we bring our lesson to a close is that more spiritual progress is made during the tragedies of our lives rather than the happy times. More progress is made during the tragedies of our lives than the happy times. Think about it when you choose your entertainment. If you go and see a comedy, what, you know, there's a bunch of funny jokes, you don't remember the half of them the next day, it's kind of pointless. You go and see a tragedy and you may Find yourself years later, oh, I'll never forget the, the night that we saw, you know, whatever movie or, or play or whatever. It has the ability to have an, a, an emotional catharsis. So he says, don't run away from tragedy. Don't run away from it. Confront it. And remember that during tragedy, use it. Use it as a time to focus. Use it as a time to... Uh, Bring yourself and, and, to, and to trust more in God. As Ron Porter says, which atmosphere lends itself to making, make, making man recognize the vanity of life? Happy times or sorrowful times? The answer, of course, is sorrowful times. So Solomon says, if you want to decrease hevel in your life, decrease frustration, don't run away from trials. We spend so much time trying to map out and make sure that we don't hit a speed bump anywhere. Speed bumps are going to happen. Sorrows are going to happen. Life is too unpredictable. It's out of our control. Sad times are going to happen. Use those times. Don't run away from them, but use them to bring back your, to, to focus and, and, and to increase your trust in God. Rarely does our trust in God increase uh, when everything's going just peachy. In conclusion, we talked about several things on Wednesday, but our first four verses this morning. If you want to decrease frustration in your life, number one, develop and protect a good reputation. You ruin your reputation, you only increase frustration in your life. So number one, develop and protect a good reputation. Number two, live with the end in mind today. Live with the end in mind Today, don't wait till the end. I know it's not something. I know it's. I know it's morbid. It's not what I'm trying to do this morning. But live with the end in mind today. Face up to the fact, and let it change you. Let it teach you. Thirdly and finally, 
Use your trials to further your trust in God. Don't run away. Don't try to plan out every step of your life. You run to a tragedy, a trial, confront it, use it to pray. Help it increase your trust and your relationship in God the Father. 